Welcome to Keeping It Israel, brought to you by First Century Foundations. This weekly podcast explores how your Christian faith connects to Israel and why standing with Israel matters. Now here's your host, Executive Director of First Century Foundations, Jeff Feuders. Well, thank you for joining us for the podcast today. My name is Jeff, and I'll be your host. And today we have a guest returning to us, uh, Professor Yosef Garfinkel. And he's the head of the Institute of Archaeology at Hebrew University, holds the Yigal Yadin Chair in Archaeology of Israel. Professor Garfinkel is currently part of a team of archaeologists who have been excavating Kirbet al-Rai since 2015, a site he now believes is the city of Ziklag. And we were able to talk about that uh, a number of weeks ago on the podcast. But today, we're going to be talking about another discovery and uh, very excited for you to learn about this. Professor Garfinkel, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Well, we are excited to uh, hear what you have to share with us. And um, we just learned about this discovery uh, a few weeks ago. And uh, today you're going to be uh, telling us a little bit about the discovery of an inscription that... Um, refers back to the book of Judges, Judges around chapter 6 through chapter 8. So tell us a little bit about what was discovered there. We are excavating the site of Chirbet uh, el-Rai for uh, seven years by now. And two years ago, we uncovered a broken uh, jar with letters written on it. And since uh, it was found in a small uh, probe, uh, we were hoping that in the next season, which was 2020, we'll find more pieces and then together we can glue all the pieces and have the entire inscription. But unfortunately, in the next season, we didn't find any more pieces or any more fragment of this child. So what we have is uh, two pieces that fix together and on it, you have the word Yerubal. You have Yud and Resh and Bet and Ein and Lamed. These are uh, proto-Canaanite uh, letters that were used in this time. The first letter is Yud, mm-hmm. but the upper part is a bit broken. But nevertheless, this is the best uh, reading. It has been deciphered by uh, Professor Christopher Rolston from George Washington uh, University and is a great uh, expert on uh, ancient Hebrew and ancient Canaanite uh, inscriptions. For those of us who read the Bible, uh, this is very exciting because, to my knowledge, uh, the only reference to that name, uh, I can't pronounce it the way you do, but, you know, Jerob Baal, is uh, in the book of Judges, and it refers to the story of Gideon. It was a, a nickname, according to the text, that was kind of given to him, or a moniker given to him, because he uh, was tearing down the places of worship to the god Baal. So talk to us, you know, I know that there's some um, difficulty with where this was found because of uh, the distance from, uh, you know, where, where Gideon lived. But tell us, what do you think, uh, you know, this means for uh, archaeology and, and for sort of confirming the text of Scripture? About 10 years ago, we discovered in the site of Herbis Kayafa, a 45th city from the time of King David, which is 1000 BC. We have an inscription with the word Ish Baal. And Ish Baal is known in the biblical uh, tradition from the time of David. He was the son of Saul who ruled after him. 
and there is few other people who called uh, Ishbal, and all of them are from the early 10th century BC. We don't have anybody called uh, Ishbal in the 9th or 8th or 7th centuries uh, BC. Now we have something similar. We have the name Yerubal, and Yerubal is known in archaeology from the late 12th or early 10th, 11th uh, century BC, and in the biblical text we have the same name, Yerubal, only in the time of the judges. We don't have it in the time of, of kings. So what we see here is that Yerubal appear in both in archaeology and in text in the 11th century BC, and Ishbal appear in the text and in archaeology in the 10th century BC. And this is important because it shows that the biblical tradition knew what were the common names in each period, and these are the names that appearing in both in uh, epigraphy, in inscriptions, and also in the text. So even if it's not exactly the same Yerubal, but maybe in the time of Gideon there were 20 people or 50 people that were called the Yerubali. Or maybe there were even 10 or 20 or 30 people who were called Gideon. You don't have one name in one person. I mean, uh, the same name can be used by uh, many uh, persons. So I, sure. we, we cannot say that this is exactly, exactly the same uh, person, but we know that this type of name was used exactly in the time of Gideon. Fascinating. So regardless uh, what you're saying, regardless if it refers to Gideon or not, or the Jerob Baal of that time, uh, we know then it's significant because uh, the name would be common, the name would be used uh, during this time period. When we're looking at the history of the Aleph Bet, we see that the earliest alphabetic inscriptions were in, or the alphabetic uh, writing was invented I, uh, under Egyptian influence. And the earliest examples we have are about 1800 BC. <clears throat> then we have a, a good number of inscriptions from late bronze Lachish, which is 13 and the first half of the 12th century BC. At about 1150, Canaanite Lachish has been destroyed. So, <clears throat> The main hub of the alphabetic uh, tradition has been destroyed. And the big question is what happened later? Till now, the other uh, inscriptions which were known came from the 10th century BC, like two inscriptions from Hebet Kayafa, an inscription from Gezer, inscriptions from Jerusalem, and also from Tel Safi. And then we have a lacuna, we have a gap of about 150 years without inscriptions. And it was a big question how the Canaanite tradition from Lachish reached the 10th century. And uh, the site of Hirbet al Rai is exactly uh, the missing link. This is the site where we now found this inscription, which is dated to about 1100 BC, and it bridged the gap. So we have an inscription from late bronze, from Iron 1, and then from Iron 2. Amazing. Now, to your knowledge, is there any other reference to the name Jerob Baal outside of the text of scripture? Are we aware of any of, the, of those kind of references? No. By the way, what is the mean Yerubal? And if you look, what is Yerushalayim? It's basically the same, uh, very similar name. Yeru, the verb is uh, basically mean founded. And Yerubal would mean that uh, a place or uh, the boy was founded or created thanks to Baal. And uh, then uh, Yerushalayim, it means that the city of Jerusalem was founded by the god Shalem. And we have a lot of names in Jerusalem uh, that are uh, relating with this component Shalem, like Shlomo and Shlomit. 
and other inscriptions that have been found in Jerusalem. So maybe the Canaanite believe in a god, or maybe the Canaanite god of Jerusalem was Shalem, and somehow he, he was embedded in the uh, memories of the city and uh, memory uh, and in the uh, name of personal names. The Bible gave a different interpretation to the name Yerubal. He says that because Gideon destroyed the altar of the Baal, he fight with the Baal. So they gave another uh, interpretation to uh, the, the beginning of the name about Yeru, which uh, is different mm -hmm. than this, uh, let's say, the, the common uh, linguistic understanding of the name. Who was inhabiting Ziklag or, or Kirbat El Rai at the time of the judges? Do we know? Okay, we need to understand the historical background. In the late bronze, we have Canaanite cities that ruled all the, the region from the southern uh, Levant till Ugarit in the north. And this area where Kirbet uh, El Rai is located, it's about four kilometers from Lachish. So this area was uh, controlled by the Canaanite city of Lachish. And if you uh, went further to uh, the west, you will have the Canaanite city of Ashkelon. And if you go further to the north, you will have other uh, Canaanite uh, cities like Jerusalem and Gezer and Gat and uh, other uh, components all the way up to the north. And we know uh, this, is, uh, this uh, type of uh, political uh, organization is uh, well known from the Lamarna tablet, about 350 letters that were sent from Canaan and northern Levant into Egypt. So we have a lot of uh, information about this political uh, structure. But then at around 1,150 or so, this structure has been collapsed. The Canaanite big cities uh, disappeared. And what do we have instead? So in the hill country, we have uh, hundreds of small villages of the Israelites. And then in the coastal plain, we have the big cities of the Philistines, Ashdod and Ashkelon and Gaza, Ekron and Gat. And the question is what's happening between and what uh, I think that we have uh, in a place like Ziklag is a small village. It's not a big, it's not a fortified city. It's not a big city like Lachish, and it's not a big city like uh, nearby Gat. It was a small town, and the name Ziklag, and we have a Palestinian influence in the site, uh, like pottery, Palestinian uh, pottery that is found in the site. <clears throat> but who were the population? And it's probably refugees from Lachish. So we have some uh, Canaanite refugees that could live in a place like Ziklag. We see by the Aleph Bet, which is a Canaanite tradition, and we can see by the pottery, which is mainly Canaanite pottery, with some Philistine uh, uh, influence. So who was the landlord? The landlord were the Philistines, and the people of El Rai paid tax to Gad, to the nearby city of Gad, and probably the city of Gad gave this name Ziklag to the site. But if you said, who were the, the people who lived there? Most of the people who wake up in the morning and went to uh, the fields to cultivate the land and to do all the daily activities, these were probably refugees from nearby Lachish. So what we have here is a complicated transition. On the one hand, before, not in the one hand, sorry, before we have a Canaanite city-state. In the 10th century BC, we have the kingdom of uh, David. And what's happened in between, about 200 years or 150 years, there was struggling between three groups, the last Canaanite, the new Israelite, and the new Philistines. And this was a, a period without much balance. I think that uh, 
it was not there was we don't see stability and the material culture is changing quite often in the Philistine uh, sites so something happened here population mixed mix, mixture of population with each other and uh, I think that only by the time of David when the area was uh, united then you can start talk about the kingdom and before it was not so clear that is that is fascinating now the the Hebrew inscription you talked a little bit about um, the difference between kind of the the interpretation from literal Hebrew and the interpretation of the Bible can you expand on that thought just a little bit to help our listeners understand um, what the differences might might be and why we have the name Yerubal. It's not necessarily a Hebrew name. It can be a Canaanite name. Because it's the, what is Baal doing here? This is the main question. And also Ish Baal. So what is the, this Baal doing it? Baal can be, can be, can be understood as a, the Canaanite god, Baal, which is mentioned a lot in the Bible. And the people of Israel are uh, supposed not to worship the Baal. And if they worship in Baal, they're doing... Uh, evil and the Bible don't like this type of uh, religion uh, attitude. But Baal can also be in Hebrew, in modern Hebrew, Baal is also husband, but it also means Lord. So Baal can be a general name to God without a specific God, either uh, the Israelite God or the Philistine God or Canaanite Baal. It can just be a general name like God and not a specific God. But <clears throat> the point is that uh, in modern uh, Hebrew uh, linguistic, when people analyzing uh, Yerushalayim, for example, so they, uh, there is a big question, what is exactly the verb? In, Hebrew, in Semitic languages, you have verbs, and the verb has three letters, which is the, 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 the root, we call it Shoresh, which is the center of the word, and then you can add and change it and do all kinds of things to the specific root. So the name Yerubal or Yerushalayim, this is in common scholarship, people understanding it as, as that God Shalem founded the city of Jerusalem. When you have a personal uh, name, you cannot say that the God uh, founded the boy, the, 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 the boy that was born. So I, I don't know exactly how it's uh, fixed. I'm not, uh, I'm not good in linguistic. All I know is that Yerubal and Yerushalayim is basically a similar, similar type of name. Well, the very exciting discovery, and, and I think that uh, for readers of the Bible, you know, they're going to sort of draw their conclusions. And, and you know, I, I know from an archaeological standpoint, uh, we always want to be very careful about uh, about making any direct connections without, without definitive evidence. But uh, I think at the same time, you know, this is still very, very significant and um, very excited about the discovery and about what more we may learn uh, as time goes on. I, uh, I know that you just finished uh, your archaeological dig season there in the last uh, week or so. And so um, we believe and, and even um, you know trust that there will be more discoveries that we're going to learn about in future. Uh, in your opinion, uh, this this would this would be the big question. You know, does the inscription seem to confirm the story of Gideon? According to the biblical tradition, the territory that Gideon activities took place was in northern Israel, in the Jezreel Valley, where he fight yes. with the Midianite. 
Uh, we are here in uh, the territory of Judah and the Philistines, so uh, it would be nicer to have a description with the name Samson on it. So yeah. the chronology and geography will fit better. But usually right. in archaeology we don't have miracles uh, like this. So I think it's good <laughs> enough to have the name uh, Yerubal on the chart. But after people ask me, I didn't think about it before, and maybe it was my, my mistake, but uh, people asking me, and they want really to uh, connect somehow this inscription with Gidon. And the one thing that we didn't do, and we should do, is to do petrographic analysis to the pottery on, on which the name was written. Because if this jar is coming from Northern Israel, and it's possible that it was uh, exported from one region ah. to the other, so right. if the jar, if the pottery was made in the Israel Valley or in northern Israel, then it will increase the possibilities that this jar was indeed belonged to Gideon. We didn't do this research yet, and I think that next step will be will be to do petrographic analysis. Uh, that's that's a fair answer, and I think that uh, we look forward to anything else that might be discovered or confirmed in future. I know that uh, you know. Those of us who, who read the Bible and believe the Bible, we want to we want to picture all kinds of amazing things, you know, that may, you know, who knows, maybe this is one of the pottery jars that was that was broken from, uh, you know, the torch. But we know that those battles happened further north. And even though even though, uh, you know, Gideon moved a little bit south to fight some of those battles, still wasn't close enough to to uh, to the south and, and to the coast for uh, for that to be the case. Uh, thanks so much for sharing with us about this. And I, I was thinking, you know, it would be great to let our viewers know, our listeners know, uh, how this most recent archaeological dig went. I know that uh, you can't tell us what you found yet because you're still working on those things and, and that all needs to be published. But um, Tell us about the season. How did it go? Was it a, a good season this year? This is kind of your first one post-COVID. And um, uh, you shared a little bit before we came on air. But uh, uh, let's hear about how the archaeological season went this, this year. Most of the university uh, excavations uh, in Israel are organized with volunteers who are coming uh, from abroad. When I excavated uh, the site before, we have a student from... Uh, Macquarie University in Australia, and before we have a student from Oakland University near Detroit, and from Virginia Commonwealth University in Virginia, and also from Miami, and in other excavation we have volunteers coming from Southern Adventist University, and and the other scholars are excavating with other institutions and with other universities, and because of the COVID and the pandemic. We don't have a, a student coming as volunteers to archaeological excavations last year and this year. And many mm. projects couldn't excavate at all. And others who managed to excavate, like me, did it on a much smaller scale. I was lucky because this season I got about 17 students from the Hebrew University that participate in the okay. excavations. And, as, and then together with staff, and some volunteers, we were about 25 people every day. And we excavated for three weeks, from Sunday till Friday. So, uh, and uh, we were a small group, but very enthusiastic group, and we managed uh, to excavate a large area. I don't want to say too much about it, 
I can also uh, I can only give you a clue that we have wonderful results from the time of David. Fantastic. Well, we will be looking forward with great anticipation to hear about that in the next couple of years. Now, you also mentioned about the hours you guys put in uh, from Sunday to Friday. Uh, just give our listeners an idea of, of the, the, the day, the length of the day and, and how that looks. So uh, usually in the day we wake up at uh, four o'clock or quarter past four and uh, we organize and uh, go out to the field. Uh, we are leaving the kibbutz, at, uh, people drink coffee and uh, things like this, and we're leaving the site uh, at about five o'clock. Uh, we're leaving the kibbutz where the expedition is staying at about five o'clock in the morning. It's still dark and we're going to the site. We're peering to the site after a quarter of an hour or so. It's still dark, but slowly, slowly we have uh, more light and the sunrise. And uh, then we open the container. We're taking uh, out all the digging equipment as people going to the excavation wow. area. And the real excavation started at about half past five. And then we're working till seven o'clock in the morning and we have quarter of an hour coffee break, coffee and cake or coffee and cookies. Then we're working till uh, nine o'clock and at the nine o'clock we have half an hour breakfast. Then we're working till 11 o'clock and at 11 o'clock we have about quarter of an hour watermelon break. And we have cold watermelon and this is the best break of the day because people <laughs> are already tiring from uh, uh, many hours of work and then you get a fresh cool watermelon, a lot of juice and sugar and it's a great uh, break. We're working till one o'clock by we're excavating till about half past 12, and uh, then we're finishing the excavation. We clean everything. We take all the equipment back to the container, and then we have uh, lunch at the site. We brought lunch from a restaurant in the nearby town of Kiryat Gat, and this was a good restaurant. Uh, every day there was a variety of uh, food. Some of us are vegetarian. Some of them don't like uh, this or that, and altogether there was always a, a nice uh, variety of uh, food and we were leaving the site at around uh, half past one or quarter to two back to the kibbutz where the expedition uh, was uh, staying and then people had siesta people took showers and slept a bit mm -hmm. and by half past four we got there again and we had to wash all the objects which were found during the day pottery and animal bones and uh, metal objects were uh, had to be uh, differently packed and uh, and stone vessels and so on and so forth. So we had to take care about all the objects which were found. And then we have uh, dinner. But in this, usually in the kibbutz, we have a big dining room and they cook food to the entire community. But the kibbutz we were staying, there was no dining room. There are not really a community anymore. So, or many of the community uh, activities are not functioning there anymore. So we had to cook our own uh, dinner. So there was uh, every day two or three students cooked something different. So hmm. it was quite interesting to see that the, the, the cooking ability of the archaeology students. <laughs> and after all this, we have lecture. In the evening, we also have lectures. Uh, every day there was a lecture in the evening sometime about the site, sometime about stratigraphy, and so on and so forth. So there were also lectures. And then the student also had to work and to make a, a daily report about what they were doing every day. So altogether, we have a lot of uh, works. 
and uh, as I was the director of the excavation, I always had to see that we have enough water and enough food and enough place for everything and nothing is missing and that everything is coordinating and so on and so forth. So I was quite busy for mm-hmm. three weeks, but uh, not much, and we got wonderful results. So all this uh, hard work uh, was very rewarding. You know, as as I think about sort of that typical day and, and so, you know, going back two years to when you made the discovery of, of these pieces of pottery with the inscription, Jerobael, um, I'm wondering, uh, did you have the, uh, did you have the privilege of being the one to discover those pieces or was it uh, one of the students? How did that come about? Like in the legend, the inscription was found in the last day of the season. What oh, happened really? is that uh, we excavated an upper level from the time of the judges, and then we decided to make a small probe to see what are the earlier levels at the site. And we excavated a very small area, like two by two meters, and we found a, a, a curve, a rounded curve of a silo. And we excavated inside the silo a very small part of the silo, maybe 10% of the entire silo. And uh, we collected all the sediment, and we, we did sieving, which is... In this case, it was very important. We didn't know that we're going to have inscription, but because it was a probe, we want to have all the pottery and also uh, olive pits and other uh, things that can be used for dating. So we have mm-hmm. 100% sifting of the material from this uh, silo. And it was the last day of the dig. We were already packing some of the stuff, and some students were washing the objects which were excavated in the day. And then suddenly somebody came and said, I think we have some letters on the shirt. And indeed, there were a few letters on the shirt. And then another one was found. And then the third one was found. Wow. And we have altogether three pieces. Two of them fit with each other. And then you have the name Yerubal. And on the third shirt, we have fragment of two more letters. But because it's so fragment, we, can, we, don't, we cannot reconstruct the letters. And we okay. don't know if it was before Yerubal or after Yerubal. So this was 2019. We were waiting patiently a whole year, and in 2020, we enlarged the whole area, and we excavated the entire silo. And of course, we sieved 100% of uh, all the find, and we were uh, washing everything very, very carefully, hoping to find more pieces of the inscription and more pieces of the jar, because it's important to, if you can put the letters with the jar, you can have maybe more knowledge about the location of the, the other two letters. Right. However, we didn't find anything more. Ah. Now we need to understand what is this silo. The silo was used for uh, keeping grains like wheat, barley, legumes, or uh, any other agricultural uh, product. But after 20 or 30 or 50 years, these silos are coming out of use because you have insect inside or maybe humidity or other uh, things, and it's not suitable anymore to be used as a silo. But then you have a big pit inside the site. So quickly people filled it with garbage. And uh-huh. what we have in the silo is animal bones and fragments of pottery. We don't have complete vessels. So the inscription was broken elsewhere, and then a fragment of the vessel were dumped into uh, the silo. This was the last phase of the silo. First it was built, then it was used, and then it came out of use and became a, ref- a, a garbage pit. And this is how okay. the inscription came inside. 
Well, that must have been very exciting. On the very last day of the dig, I, you know, that's almost uh, made for a movie script, but uh, I think that's great. Now, maybe you, have, you don't know or just general use, but do you have any idea what the, what the jar itself would have been used for specifically? It's, a not, it's not a very big uh, container. It was a rather small uh, container, so it can be used for uh, something like uh, olive oil or some uh, expensive uh, medical or something like this. Wonderful. Well, Yossi, thank you so much for being with us today, for being with us every time you've been with us. We spent some great time with you at Kirbet Kayafa and uh, then later at, uh, at Lakish and and you've been on the podcast before. It's just always great to be able to uh, make a connection with you and to hear uh, about the work that you're doing. And we're very grateful for your time today. So thanks for being with us on the podcast. Sure, it's my pleasure.